Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, and your honor, first, let me say thank you for your time and patience in this complex case. I am sorry of depriving you of the time away from your families. I may not understand how or why you reached the verdict that you did, but what I do understand is that you were not afforded all of the information and the investigative reports in this case. You were not present to hear the evidence supporting my innocence and the motive of other suspects. I feel that if you had heard and saw all the evidence, that I would not be here today in front of you. I hope you find peace in your decisions you have made. My mind and the minds of my family are clear to the fact that I am innocent. And I believe that God, the Almighty and the ultimate judge, knows I am innocent. I have not had the opportunity to express my pain about the children who are brutally murdered in their home. Now I must express my sorrow and prayers openly to you, my peers. In doing so, I would also say to you in that I trust in whatever decision you reach here today. And in my heart, I hold no animosity towards you, the jury. Your Honor, thank you and God bless. Those are the words of Ronald Tromboli. This is a statement he gave during sentencing. Ronald would ultimately be sentenced to three life sentences to run consecutively. Ron would not be eligible for parole until he was 96 years old. Ronald's wife, DC, had to see her husband sent off to prison, unable to be there for his newborn son. I still carry him in my heart. I was carrying his son, the only one he has, and he never got he never got to live with him, raise him. And his son is so much like him. And his son has to live with that, you know? Supposedly what his dad did. He loves his dad and talks about his dad, wishes his dad was here, still cries about it. Yeah. He wishes yeah. that he had his dad. So, and now he's a dad. So now it puts him in that position to where, you know, it's even probably worse for him. But he's a yeah. good daddy, and he's just like his daddy. And that's what's got me frustrated today. I can't change my story. I can only tell you the story how I remember it. And it's, it just doesn't make sense. I can't place him there. I can't. After the shock of the verdict, Ronald's defense, of course, appealed. The defense starts the appeals. They file the appeal. And then um, once they denied all those appeals, my grandmother asked me at this point to basically, she said, take care of your children. I don't want you getting involved. I and your grandfather are paying a lawyer to file a a writ. So I basically just kind of stepped aside for Probably, what, a couple of years? We talked about it all the time, and at that point in time, it wasn't, nothing was in our hands. Lisa's family, you know, was, they were taking care of the writ of habeas corpus lawyer, and the defense lawyers were filing the, the appeal. So those wheels were turning without us being involved at that point. In 91 and 92, uh, both the appeals were rejected. So you're looking at around 93 from that point on. He had no other uh, options except for a writ of habeas corpus. 
The appeals have been denied, so we're waiting on the writ of habeas corpus to be written. And Melvin Bruder, who you remember from the Thin Blue Line, he was Randall Dale Adams' uh, writ attorney. He was the one doing the writ. Yeah, the writ of habeas corpus is like, in a criminal proceeding is like the last resort. The appeals are denied and your writ of habeas corpus could be compared to today to like a writ of innocence, uh, court of inquiry, uh, making a case for innocence. And your writ of habeas corpus is like your, you know, your last chance to put out there new information or information that wasn't there before in the court. Habeas corpus is Latin for that you have the body. Cornell Law School's definition says it's used to determine if a state's detention of a prisoner is valid. A writ of habeas corpus is used to bring a prisoner or other detainee before the court to determine if the person's imprisonment or detention is lawful. My dad did not like the writ. That was one of the things, because Melvin wrote up a writ, but my dad didn't like it, so he denied it. He said, no, this is not good well, enough. Well, he never had a completed writ. Your father didn't like, you know, that it was proceeding so slowly. I did go to Melvin Bruder's office one day, and when I went and I, to go talk to him, because I wanted to know, I'm like, Melvin, what do we need to get for you? And it really was the DNA. I mean, the DNA was kept being the roadblock for attorneys. Trying to find a way to help, Lisa would, in an ironic twist of fate, wind up working for a private investigator. Bill Van Sickle. I went up there, I interviewed, I got the job. The job gave Lisa tools she didn't have before. It was really weird. It was downtown Dallas uh, in the old uh, red building. And that's where things opened. That's where the doors opened up for me because I learned how to look up, you know, uh, people on their system. I learned, I met people in the um, district clerk's office. So I was, I was able to learn how to gather the information, how to, you know, go through the, the loopholes of coming around the back door and gathering everything I needed. Really what Lisa learned was how to independently investigate the crime her father was convicted of. What ended up happening from there was I went over to, I met a, a lady named Vicki Capers, who was also, she was a document retrieval uh, person who had a business downtown Dallas and in Fort Worth. And she used to work for Sharon Wilson. And so I was talking to her cause she saw me doing some uh, work for Bill downtown and she needed help. And I talked to her and um, she offered me a job and I loved it, and I, and I went to work for her. I ran her Dallas office, and she was running her Fort Worth office. When you went to work for the private investigators, you learned the tools of the trade. That's how we started being able to do research on right. other suspects, you know, and learn case, case law, uh, the process of reinvestigating or looking at a case. We had the tools, Lisa learned the tools for us to be able to go start doing that. And um, so through Vicki Capers, Vicki was talking to the Johnson County district clerk, the new district clerk, and mentioned the fact that she goes, hey, guess who works for me? And and of course he says who? And she, she says, Ron Tromboli's daughter. 
So where he mentions, hey, I'm about to throw away all that, all her dad's stuff. All the evidence, everything, everything. that was in the district clerk's office. They were going to get rid of the evidence. They were going to throw everything away. When she got involved with private investigators, when her, you know, we retrieved all the documents, we were able to read all the transcripts, we were starting to get involved. This is how she got involved. This is where it really started. The wheels started turning with Lisa and I. I went to visit my father. I told him what was going, because I would tell him, hey, this is what we're doing. And then he said, I'm going to send you the transcripts because he has his own transcripts he you know the lawyer when i guess how it works is the lawyer sends you the defendant after the case is over sends him all the transcripts of the last trial so uh, that convicted him so he that's what he did i started reading and looking through stuff and that's when <coughs> i knew i needed to fight for my father meanwhile Ronald was in prison, and at that time, still very active and involved in his case. So at this point, my dad's trying to keep, you know, a, a, a good outlook. Um, he's really happy that I'm involved. He, you know, starts telling me things about, you know, well, what's asking me, like, what's the lawyers doing? What do, what, do they need anything from him? Lisa was working on it. Uh, Bill was working on it. We were all, you know, wheels were turning. And then he, uh, and then that's when he got sick. Even though my father kept saying he was innocent, I never face to face, eye to eye, asked him if he was guilty, you know, or not guilty, but asked him if he, Dad, did you do this? I never just asked him. And why I felt at that point I needed to, I don't know. So, um, you know, we've had, and I didn't visit my dad like every week because number one, I couldn't afford it. Number two, the, the, the drive is long. It takes up your whole day um, going there and coming back. And, and, and although that doesn't sound like, well, God, this is your father and he's in prison. I have four children and they all have, yeah, you know, baseball, ba basketball, soccer, football, school, uh, birthday parties, you know, and life. And, and there's, and I'm not the only person living in the area to go visit him. So I didn't get to visit him as often as I wish I could have. So this particular time when I was like, okay, I'm ready, I'm going to look at him face to face. Mark and I had $20 to our name to the next paycheck. And I, wanted to go and Mark wanted me to not go but I insisted you know he wanted me to wait another week to go where he could go with me but I was like no I, I want to go by myself and I want to do this by myself so I went and I prayed and I seriously tell everybody it's a true story I said please God please give me a sign any kind of sign that tells me I'm not trying to get out a guilty man so I get there and he's there and I go in and I go to, and he comes out and I see that his eyes are pea yellow. And this is the first time I've ever saw him sick like that. Now, maybe six months earlier or four months earlier, he had said to me in a visit that we had inside 
that they're killing me. And I, he just blurted that out. And I, I did, I said, they're killing you. He, and he's like, yeah, I don't know. He goes, but they're killing me. And I, what do you say to that? Right? Like, okay. I said, well, you know, can you talk to Bill? Who do you talk to dad? He's like, I don't know. So I said, nothing much about it. Went home trying to think, who do you call? Who, who's going to care about this man enough to do something about it? I didn't know there's lawyers out there that'll do something. And so anyway, that last visit was my last visit with him after that. And his eyes were pea yellow. And we sat down and he proclaimed his innocence without me asking him. He, he just, I asked him if he wanted something to drink. He told me he, he'd like to, you know, have a ginger ale if they have it. And then he slammed his hand down and he pointed at me and he told me, I don't care what anybody thinks. I only care about what you think. And I want you to know that I wasn't there when they were being killed and I didn't kill or rape anybody. And I just looked at him and I said, I know, Dad, I know. And then, um, and, and I don't know why I'm going to get upset, but then um, we had the best visit ever. And then the guard told me, his time's up, you got to go. And we got up and he hugged me and he whispered in my ear that it's terminal. And I go, okay. And I have to leave. I can't stay. I can't ask any more questions. So <laughs> I leave. And my dad, always joking around, talking too much, tells the guard, you know, you better watch out. She has, she has sons. And, uh, and then my last, you know, I'm sure people in the traditional system will love to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't really like to give them the satisfaction, but the guard turned around and goes, I'm not worried about it, Tromboli. We're going to stick you in a pine box. And send you back to New York. And send you back to New York. So, you know, I just looked at him. And as I passed by him, I said, you're a real piece of work and left. And then that was the last time I ever saw my father in prison. Ronald did get out of prison, but only because he was dying. They send prisoners to this hospital in Galveston. I got a phone call from my aunt who called me and said, "Get pack your stuff. Uh, we got plane tickets. We're going to Galveston tomorrow. And I said, okay. And uh, she goes, it's your dad. He's very sick. And I said, okay. So I, I flew with my grandmother and my aunt. My sister came afterwards. And we... Um... <laughs> Sorry. Why am I so upset? It's okay. Just, yeah. So... Um... We, when we first got there, he didn't recognize us. He didn't even know who I was. We walked up to the bed, and uh, my grandmother and my aunt had just visited him and came down, because they only did two at a time. So they came down, and then me and Cindy went up, and he didn't even recognize us. 
Cindy is Lisa's sister, Ronald's other daughter. And Cindy's like, Dad, it's it's Cindy, it's Lisa. And he's like, you know, he's even frightened by us. And we, I couldn't understand it. So I just kept staring at him. And then um, Cindy kept talking to him. And I was probably like this. <laughs> and I think I walked away to go to the bathroom so I could cry. And um, the nurse, one of the nurses, as I was walking, grabbed me and hooked her arm under my arm and whipped me into a room to tell me, she said, your father is dying of hepatitis A, B, C, D, and E. And I, like, again, I'm looking at her like, okay, but you're the nurse, <laughs> you know, what do you want me to do? But she wanted I, you to know what was but going she, on. Yeah, but then I realized she wanted me to know, you know, what is happening to him, which then made my, you know, then now all the files are going and it's like, oh yeah, he said they're killing him, you know? And um, so I went back and I talked to my dad. We visited, we stayed about, oh, probably four days, five days, but then spring break was happening and the uh, hotel said, you know, the room is already rented. We couldn't stay any longer. Uh, they couldn't find any more rooms uh, available. And uh, so we went back home. My aunt and my grandmother visited him one more time. And my aunt called me and said that your dad's black hair had turned completely white. And I said, oh, and uh, she goes, your father's dying. Hepatitis is an inflammation of the liver. There are five main hepatitis viruses, which are transmitted in a variety of ways, including ingestion of contaminated food or water, medical procedures with contaminated equipment, receipt of contaminated blood, and more. The five main hepatitis viruses are A, B, C, D, and E. Ronald had all five. Symptoms can include jaundice or yellowing of the skin and eyes, extreme fatigue, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. She said, I'm gonna ask the warden if you guys can get a special visit during the week because my aunt felt like that was the weekend, Saturday or Sunday. She was going to try to get in touch with the warden on Monday to see if we could, you know, come during the week. Because they let him out of the hospital and they sent him back to Huntsville. Yeah, so now he's in Huntsville and he's going to die in Huntsville at their infirmary, you know, or whatever it's called. And then uh, the warden said no. The, the warden said he's not sick enough for us to be able to do that. So he was really close with the chaplain. Chaplain Lopez, very close. Chaplain Lopez uh, really liked my father. Uh, he said my father was the ins inspiration to having crosses up on the walls in in their church. He he said uh, Ron really fought for that. He fought for you know getting some books in there, and he did a lot of of that. Um, so Chaplain Lopez was really close with him. My grandmother gave a phone call to my mom asking, is anybody gonna go visit Ron this weekend because Chaplain Lopez just called her. 
and said Ron is asking probably for his children to come. And so, <laughs> you know, you get it. You can tell the story as it is. It sucks. It is what it is. Right. So I took a deep breath and I just like went, <sighs> and my mom freaked out and said, what is going on with you? And I said, he's dying. He's dying. And she goes, no, he's not. He'll be fine. My mom, she's like, he's fine. He's fine. He, your father's tough. He'll get through this. He gets through everything. I said, no, mom, this is the end of the road. And my sister's just listening. And I came into the living room where Mark was. And I said, I want to go see my dad tomorrow. Because I think this was Friday. And uh, we had kids and they had the boys had some two baseball games. And although this is as crazy as it is, Mark too was in denial because Mark is always in, like always on the upper, like let's um, think positive, think positive, right? But I was in no mood to fight anybody. So I said, I want to go. And he says, well, it's going to be difficult for your mom to take the kids to the baseball games and it's too blah, blah, blah. So I just got quiet. And he goes, we'll go Sunday. And I just was quiet. And so we went to the kids' baseball games. And I'm telling the moms at the baseball game that <laughs> I'm going to go to a prison to go see my father who's dying. And um, it's, everybody's looking at me crazy. <laughs> and I start to get ready. Like, now I'm going to start washing some clothes and getting things ready to go on the trip to go see him. And so as I'm doing it, Mark comes in, he just comes in the room I'm in and he closed the door and he hugs me and he says, um, your dad <laughs> asked. And I said, okay. <laughs> and God, this sucks. Okay, let me get, he goes, your dad has passed. And I said, okay. So I went and sat down and I just sat there, I think in that chair for like three days. I didn't move, I didn't do anything. I just sat there and uh, was in the garage. And I remember sitting there and somehow um, one of my friend's little boys, um, found out and he <laughs> drove his bicycle <laughs> all the way to the house to give me a letter to tell me how sorry he was about my dad and that he understands because he misses his grandpa. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> and his name is Jacob and I said, I love you, Jacob. And he left. And I remember just sitting there in my neighbor's backyard, there was two trees. And one tree was really tall, they were both very tall, but one was, was dead and the other one was alive. And I just, it was just a resemblance of life for me to see that life still goes on. And I was watching the airplanes and I was like, why is that airplane in the sky? My dad is dead. <laughs> Raul Tromboli passed away on May 9th, 1998.
from hepatitis he contracted while in prison. He was 54 years old. The process of it was knowing that life had to go on and I had to continue living. And, uh, and uh, so it took a little while to shake it. We had the funeral and um, I remember the pastor called me and uh, asked me if I had any words. And my response to him was, well, anything that I had to say, I've already said it. So I was done. Everyone was worried about Lisa, <laughs> minus everybody else. So they wanted me to bring Lisa myself. Everybody else would go to the funeral. It was an open casket and her mother especially, because everybody was wondering how Lisa was gonna react when she got there. It was a big deal. It was all about Lisa. All eyes were on Lisa. Everybody's heart was with Lisa, aside from their own feelings. It was about Lisa. So I said, I'll take care of Lisa. Mark waited and I came out and he walked me in DC, because you had DC and my sister followed and walked us to the, to the casket and the three of us, we're at the casket and uh, my sister touches him and DC says, oh, Ron, <laughs> oh, Ron. And then me, cause I'm me, I go, that's not my dad <laughs> and I'm done. And I thought at the funeral to myself, how surreal it was that you have this small room with this man who knew a lot of people, had friends, you know, that there's just, a handful of their, his, uh, Lisa's grandmother's friends there and a few family members. It's like, it's not, it's like, you know, this, this man was a triple murder. He was in prison for a triple murder. Who's going to give a shit if he dies? You know, there's just a few people there and it's over. I just thought that was, you know, just kind of surreal and sad. After Ronald's death, surely. Lisa must have considered simply moving on, right? A little time passed before we were, right. we were ready to get back. But it was a week that I could actually function. Another week I started to, you know, get, okay, he's gone. And I was still working for uh, Vicky Capers at this time. So um, I think there was a night where I just had enough. And I feel so bad, but Mark had boxed everything nicely up, organized everything. And I had my moment of rage and I went over there and I kicked everything across the room. And I was yelling, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And he, again, wraps his big arms around me and, and is holding me while I'm screaming, I don't want to do this anymore. And he says, you know way too much and you've come way too far to stop now. And I kept saying, I don't want to, I don't want to. And he goes, you do. And I said, no, I don't. And he said, you cannot not tell your story about your father. You cannot let them what, what do you always say? You can't. Say you can't let them get away with this. Yeah, he used to say you can't. So it's, it needs to be known what happened. 
I just calmed down and but if you weren't married to me you might have let it go and this would never be happening <laughs> it, it might have it might have and that wasn't the first time there was a few times over the years that she was ready to give up on him but I you know I kept it going it was me that kept it going but then it wouldn't take her you know it wouldn't take her long to get back on board no she just have to go through her emotions and then she's ready to go again Ronald may have passed away but the story would not die it would be revived in part by Mike Cochran, a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. To say that Mike and Lisa's first encounter was not promising is an understatement. After he passed away is when Lisa, through people she had met doing work with investigators, got us into, got Lisa in to see Mike Cochran, retired Associated Press, you know, reporter was now working for the Forward Telegram. He's like a, he's a great guy, a local legend, journalist. Mike's sitting on his couch, just laid back, not even, doesn't even get up, doesn't get, doesn't even like, uh, I think he's annoyed by me before he even, before I even get there, you know? And so I, uh, she says, go ahead and tell Mike, and I proceed to tell him, you know, my dad was railroaded, da-da-da-da-da. Um, and before I can even finish the story, Mike Cochran goes, get the fuck out of my house. I only walked like maybe four steps and I was pissed. And I turned around and I walked right back up to his front door, opened it up, walked into his house and said, Mike, it is a lot easier for me to go through life knowing my father died in prison for a crime he committed than to spend my entire life knowing he died in there for a crime he didn't commit. And Mike was like, quiet. And then he goes, get your stuff together. Have your husband call me. Cause you know, he's a man's man. And have your husband call me and we'll meet. And so, I did that. And then Mark contacted Mike. I, you know, made an appointment, met at some bar, and they discussed my dad's case. I did not want to go. I just figured, you know what? I'm going to step out of this one, let the guys talk. Mark can do, you know, explain a lot. So after that conversation, Mike came to my house and we showed him everything we had. After, after that, we started going to Mike's uh, we started going to Mike Cochran's house about yeah. three times a week. Yeah, he, he had a home office. He worked out of you know, his office. He had an office at the Star-Telegram and a home office, and we spent the next two years working with him on this case. From an inauspicious start, Mike's interest in the story would come full circle, and he became nearly as dedicated to investigating the story as Mark and Lisa. We start going to his house three days a week, off and on for two years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Two, sometimes two days a week, sometimes three days a week for two years, and uh, we—I mean, we are fine combing this evidence. You know, there's a lot that he found out, and he really stood by Lisa. He, you know, we got close, we became friends. He was a great guy. He was on board with the case. We would have interviewed Mike for this podcast, but it was impossible to do so. 
mean, he just passed away about six, seven months ago, and we didn't even know it. I mean, yeah. My God, it's a sad, sad, sad day when we found that out, oh, and yeah. we were really close with him. It was almost like losing my father all over again. Yeah. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram would ultimately publish an eight-part series of news stories written by Mike Cochran about Ronald's story. The newspaper would also pay for a DNA retest. So it was all going to lead to this DNA retest. And I told you that because of live codes being discredited, because PCR was more advanced now in 2000 and 2001, that would be something we need to do before we could go anywhere else. Lisa was totally against it. Mike and I had to talk her into it. You know, the paper paid for the DNA test. We chose Blake. And all through this time we were doing this story, Lisa's on the phone with Blake. They talked often. Oh, yeah. We talked, Ed Blake and I talked probably for five years. And off and on each year, at least two, three, four times a year. But as we got closer to doing the retest I'm the one who asked him if he would do the retest I'm the one who asked him what do I need to do and Ed Blake knew that I had the evidence he knew that the evidence was in my possession and he was very concerned about that and he was so concerned about it that he's the one who made me go back through Bill Lane according to Mark and Lisa the Johnson County District Clerk's Office was going to throw away forensic evidence in the year 2000. So Mark and Lisa called Bill Lane, Ronald's defense attorney, from the third trial, and they made arrangements for it not to be thrown away. They went to Bill Lane's office, where Lisa and one of Bill Lane's investigators inventoried it, and some select forensic evidence not previously tested, an additional vaginal swab and anal smears, was then packaged to send to Edward Blake. Edward Blake was the expert who had previously testified in the third trial. We have a letter from Bill Lane to Blake in May of 2001 that shows correspondence about this test. But this evidence had been sitting in the clerk's office in boxes for over 10 years. Blake, seemingly out of concern for both chain of custody and the possible degradation of the evidence, told Lisa he simply retested samples he'd kept from the third trial. What was the result? Was it possible something had changed? Some advancement in Blake's technology that would render a different result despite testing the exact same evidence from the third trial. No, it was a match. Well, that should do it, right? Case closed. What could possibly challenge this result at this point? But remember, in this story, one plus one does not seem to ever equal two. We'll explain all the ways it doesn't in the next and final episode. Next time in our final episode, we'll hear from Justin Brooks, the founder of the California Innocence Project, and get into the documentation that Mark and Lisa have unearthed in their decades-long journey to make sense of this story. We'll hear about a sheet that Danielle was on top of that bizarrely never made it into the focus of the discussion prior. We'll hear about questions of chain of custody of that DNA evidence, the same evidence Edward Blake retested. And we'll look at a serologist report, which seems to indicate a major discrepancy between what is and is not on a swab. All the things the jury didn't or couldn't know at the time of the third trial, you will hear. You'll know, and you'll get to decide for yourself. Is this story ultimately what it always appeared to be? Was Ronald Tromboli really a brutal murderer? Or 
is it possible that an extraordinary string of misfortunes doomed an innocent man? That's next time. In the Blood is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Lead reported and written by Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins. Original music by Derlis Gonzalez. Hosted by Ben McKenzie. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. And subscribe now for future episodes.